Well, let's return to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, we are fast approaching the end of this book. And we need to take up a matter that we left unresolved last week. There's only been one time when I have talked with the elders about a sermon that I plan to preach, and it is this sermon. All right, I gave them a quick overview of everything that I plan to say, and I got their feedback, and I don't normally do that, but I thought I better do that this time, and uh, they were okay with it. I didn't get any pushback from anybody, so if you've got a problem with it, you can deal with them. No, I'm just okay. All right, Romans 16. The list of names in this chapter gives us a surprising amount of information about the early church. It's the longest list of names found in any of Paul's greetings. And the names indicate the early Christians were drawn largely from the lower classes in Rome. Included here also are the names of slaves and former slaves. And the names are largely Gentile names. And nine of them are women's names. And Paul highly valued the role of women in the advancement of the gospel in the first century. But there's a question that we need to address regarding the identity of Phoebe in verse 1. And also in verse 2, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincreum, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Obviously, Paul holds Phoebe in very high regard. But observe the term that is used to describe her, the term servant. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant. In the Greek, the term is diakonos. It's the term deacon. The NIV translation reads, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon at the church at Sincreum. Likewise, the New Living Translation I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church in Sincreum. The Amplified Bible reads, Now I introduce and commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess, and in parentheses, a servant of the church at Sincreum. And indeed, the word servant in our ESV or is the word deacon or deaconess, if you prefer. It is the noun form of the verb that we find in Acts 6, where we learn of the appointment of seven men to serve the physical needs of the church. So, was Phoebe a female deacon or deaconess in the church at Sincreum? That is the issue that we need to look at today. And if so, what does that mean for us? I'm getting a variety of looks from you all from... Where is he going with this to, hmm, I don't know if you're coming back next week. No, please. All right, let's just deal with it. 
101 years ago, in 1920, the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. And over the last century, considerable attention has been given to the role of women in society, from the workplace to political offices and to the church. by women, and I'm not today dealing with the issue of a woman pastor or elder, which I believe the scripture forbids. But it is true that enormous momentum has changed the function and role of women in society over the last century. And Christians can be instantly polarized by any discussion of the role of women in churches. In some circles, if a pastor even considers for a moment that the NIV translation is correct, that Phoebe was a deacon, he is instantly accused of selling out the faith, or conforming to the spirit of the age, or abandoning the historic faith once delivered to the saints, or even worse, paving the way for total apostasy and the coming of the Antichrist. Well, friends, my only consideration today is fidelity to the text of Scripture, Paul used the word deacon by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and there was no getting around that. Now, let's be clear about one further matter. This issue of whether the New Testament text supports deaconesses is not merely a modern issue. It has been around since the beginning of the church. It's been around since the beginning of the Baptist faith also. And I want you to know that I feel absolutely no pressure today from the so-called spirit of the age to deal with this issue. If you think that I am in any way conforming to popular theological trends, please don't anyone think that. You know me well enough to know that I feel the weight of church history much more than I feel the weight of popular perspective. All right? I, I, I live in church history. Every year I go from Christ to the present with my graduate students in church history. All right? So again, I feel no pressure from some sort of spirit of the age. I feel the weight of church history. And the reason I'm dealing with this issue today is because it's right there in the text that we have come through, come to through the normal exposition of the word. I mean, we arrived at Romans 16.1, so we've got to deal with it. All right, now let's consider church history for just a moment. One of the earliest post-New Testament descriptions of Christian worship comes from a letter that the governor Pliny of Bithynia wrote to the emperor Trajan in approximately 109 A.D. So this is very, very early. And early records like these letters are incredibly important to church historians because they tell us how the early church put into practice the teaching of the New Testament. It's how they interpreted the New Testament. And Pliny, by the way, hated Christians. But listen to his letter. He describes their early worship this way. They used to gather on a stated day before dawn. Again, Sunday was not a holiday in the Roman world. And sing to Christ as if he were a god. And they took an oath not to involve themselves in villainy, but rather to commit no theft, no fraud, no adultery, not to break faith, nor to deny money placed with them in trust. 
Once these things were done, it was their custom to part and return later to eat a meal together. And that's the communion meal. So that's a description of what an early church service looked like. But listen to what he says next. Writing to the emperor, he says, I believe that necessary to find out what was the truth from two servant maids, which were called deaconesses by means of torture. So he found two deaconesses and he tortured them to find out what the Christians actually believed. And of course, this is a very, very sad account. But it does reveal that there were deaconesses, deaconesses in the early church in the early 2nd century, at least in Bithynia. And I could give you many sources, but let me skip ahead to the 4th century. I'm going to read to you from the Apostolic Constitutions, a work, a work which comes from Antioch, and it's based on earlier church manuals. And it reads, Ordain also a deaconess who is faithful for the ministrations towards women. For sometimes the pastor cannot send a deacon who is a man to the women. And it continues, we stand in need of a woman, a deaconess, for many reasons, for example, in the baptism of women. They felt like it was appropriate when it comes to some issues, you need a woman to take care of these issues, so appoint a woman deaconess, a woman servant, to deal with these issues. All right, fast forward to the 17th century. Let's talk about the early records of the Baptist. We have a variety of records that refer to early deaconesses. For instance, in the records of the Baptist church, Meeting in Bristol, England, from the years 1640 to 1687, we have names of all the members. I want to read to you from 1671. We have a church list of everybody who served, anybody who was a member of that church, and the church in Bristol had 98 members as of 1671. And these included three elders, three deacons, and one deaconess, a woman named Mary West. Beside her name in the church records, a note reads, The Deaconess. The same records later tell of the death of Mary West and of the church's response. Quote, Upon the second of the fifth month, 1673, by reason of the decease of Sister West, the widow or deaconess of the church, the congregation chose Sister Murray to be a deaconess to the church, thus being elected and set apart by prayer. So Mary died, Mary West died, and Sister Murray replaced her to take care of her role. And I can add examples. John Smith was the first English Baptist. He wrote in 1609, The church hath power to elect and approve and ordain her own deacons, both men and women. The first English Baptist confession of faith, the very first Baptist confession of faith, was written by a man named Thomas Helwys. It was written in 1611. And it states, deacons, men and women who by their office relieve the necessities of the poor and impotent brethren concerning their bodies. It was very important when deacons ministered to people's bodies that they had women in particular that ministered to other women. 
And again, I could just give you many, many examples, but I think these will suffice to establish my point. The question of a deaconess in the church is not a modern issue. That's my point. This isn't some modern issue that we're suddenly discovering in the text. So don't anyone be misled by the modern idea that anyone who deals with this issue is sort of conforming to the spirit of the age. I'm not doing that, all right? I'm just dealing with the issue in a historical context. And what I want to do this morning is actually look at everything the Scripture has to say on this topic, all right? We are going to look at every reference that relates to this topic. And it's not going to take that long because there's only four passages All right, so let's begin by turning to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. The early church had a real need because of certain widows who were being neglected. So the church appointed seven men, seven males, to oversee the distribution of resources. And we read about that in Acts 6. And in so doing, these seven men alleviated the pressure on the apostles and freed them to continue the work of prayer and the ministry of the word. And these men are often, though not always, considered the church's first deacons. Now, not all scholars are certain these are actually deacons. If they are, this is the first reference that we have to an office that later will become much more stratified. But let's read the text. Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, that we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. I'll pause right there. As the New Testament unfolds, it's the elders who take on those responsibilities of ministering in prayer and the ministry of the word. They replace the apostles. Let's continue. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And here's the result. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, the noun deacon is not used in this passage And so some have suggested that these were not actually deacons. I tend to think that they were, although the office, again, is not real clear at this point. There's a need. They're saying, let's go find some servants to address the need. And apparently these needs are ongoing and eventually become a core part of the church. So these are sort of early deacons or proto-deacons or something like that in my estimation. 
So again, the word deacon is not used, but if you look at the end of verse 2, you'll notice the term serve, to serve table. To serve comes from the verb diakono or diakoneo, which is the word from which we get our word, the noun deacon. Diakoneo means to serve, all right? So these men were called to diakoneo, the tables. They were identified by their service. And again, look at verse 3. The text reads, pick out from among you seven men. All right? And then we have seven men who are named. So to follow the apostles' examples, many churches, ours included, appoint men to the office of deacon. But again, it's hard to say whether Acts 6 is truly precedent-setting for the future. We tend to take it that way, and I think that's perfectly appropriate. But we do have to be a little bit cautious when we talk about setting precedent from a historical narrative. In other words, does Luke record this incident as an exact pattern that every church must follow? I mean, you read doctrine that way, but do you read narrative that way? Is this an exact pattern that every future church has to follow? Or is he simply saying seven men were chosen because, in fact, seven men were chosen? That's just what happened historically. Well, if the passage offers an exact pattern, you have to be careful. Shouldn't we always have then exactly seven deacons? If it's an exact pattern, we're actually too short at the moment because we have five in our church at the moment. Further, there are things in Acts that are not necessarily precedent-setting. For instance, in this same church, we find the practice of a community of goods Shared goods, a sort of primitive communism, and we don't practice anything like that today. So again, Acts 6 seems to point us to the appointment of deacons. The term deacon, though, is not used. Acts 6 points to seven men, but it's hard to say that Acts 6 sets an exact precedent. All right? And that's everything I can say about Acts 6 at this point. So let's go now to our second passage, Philippians chapter 1. We've only got three more passages to consider. And Philippians 1 is going to be the easiest. And it's really not going to tell us anything. It really adds no new information Aside from telling us the church at Philippi had a plurality of deacons. Every time you see the deacons, by the way, there's a plurality, just like you see a plurality of elders. Look at Philippians 1 and verse 1. Paul addresses his epistle to the church located at Philippi, and here's what he writes. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers, that's another word for elders, the episkopos, and deacons. That's deacons in the plural. It's not a lot to go on, but it seems that Paul now recognizes the congregation and the overseers and the deacons. And in this case, the ESV simply transliterates the Greek. This is the same word in the plural that's used to Phoebe, the word deacon. All right, so that's our second passage. 
and not a whole lot to go on. And that brings us to Romans 16. Let's go back now to Romans 16. And let's again take up the issue of who this woman Phoebe is. Phoebe is from the port city of Sincrea near Corinth. And Phoebe had come to Rome. Many believe that it's very likely that she carried the very epistle that we are reading to the Romans. Imagine that. Imagine being entrusted with this glorious epistle that explains the gospel of our salvation to the Romans. This is a very important work. The text again reads, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She was a big, big help to Paul. Now again, the English term servant is the Greek term deacon. It's the very word that we saw in Philippians 1 and verse 1. Now here is where it gets a little bit challenging. All right, The noun deacon, as well as the verb diakoneo, or to serve, can be used generically. Jesus Christ himself is called a servant, a deacon. In fact, we are all called to deacon in the church. Every last one of us, we are called to serve the body of Christ. Pastors are called to deacon. Elders are called to serve in the church. Paul called Timothy, a young elder, to do the work of a deacon. In Colossians 1 and verse 7, Paul refers to Epaphras, our beloved, here's what he says, fellow servant, our fellow deacon. Paul is identifying both Epaphras and himself as deacons. So here's an apostle, and he's saying, yeah, we're deacons too. So the term can be used very generically. But, of course, the church came to recognize people specifically as deacons with special tasks to carry out. The office does become formalized in time. And we know this because of the fourth passage that we're going to turn to momentarily, where Paul gives Timothy qualifications for continuously appointing deacons in the church. So we know the office becomes formalized. So the question is this, was Phoebe merely a generic servant of the church in the same sense that we should all be, or was she singled out specifically to serve some special role in the church? And the truth is that many commentators believe the latter. I was really actually quite surprised by this. Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner are probably the two most highly regarded commentators on Romans, evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing commentators. Right? They're still working today. These are good men. Both of them hold this view. In fact, every commentator that I looked at, and I didn't look at all of them, but 
everyone that I looked at actually holds this view. That includes John MacArthur, John Stott, Leon Morris, and Everett Harrison. They all hold that Phoebe was a deacon in the more formal sense, and let me explain why. First of all, the term deacon in verse 1 is masculine. It's a masculine term, even though Phoebe is feminine. You would expect the term deacon, we don't always do this in English, of course, but you would expect the term deacon to agree with Phoebe in gender if, in fact, the term servant was generically describing her as a servant of the church. But the term itself is masculine, and it's the masculine noun that seems to refer to the office itself. It's the masculine noun, for instance, that Paul will use in 1 Timothy when he describes the office of a deacon. And then secondly, observe how the term deacon or servant is followed by the phrase of the church in synchria. All right, notice that wording, of the church, a deacon of the church in synchria. In those days, local churches were identified by their locale. Paul is naming a specific church. In other words, a deacon of the church in Synchria would be equivalent to saying a deacon of University Baptist Church. He's identifying a deacon of a particular local church, a deacon of University Baptist Church, a deacon of a church at Synchria. If I referred to a deacon of University Baptist Church, you would assume that I was talking about one of our elected deacons. And thirdly, Phoebe is the only, get this, she is the only person in the New Testament ever directly identified so specifically with a local church. Remember back in Acts 6, those men were not actually called deacons. The verb was used, but they were not identified by the noun deacon. This is actually surprisingly the only place where the term deacon is associated directly with a named individual and a named church. It's the only place. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? It's the only place, again, where the word deacon is associated with a named individual and a named church. So, most commentators believe, at least the ones that I consulted, that Paul was clearly identifying Phoebe as a deacon in that church. So, where does this leave us at this point? All right, well, if you go back to Acts 6, it would seem that the deacons were all male. If you didn't have Acts 6 and you had only Romans, all right, you would assume that a deacon is a female. So, where do we go from here? Let's go to our final passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is really the only other passage that really sheds any light on the issue. 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul outlines the qualifications for both elders and deacons in the church. And beginning with verse 2, Paul gives the criteria for serving as an overseer or an elder. And then in verse 8, he gives a list of qualifications for deacons. And let's read the qualifications. Verse 8, deacons, and that's the plural of the term that was used for Phoebe, 
Likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And that's it, friends. We have looked at all the New Testament data. And you might think the question of female deacons is easily solved right there in verse 11, where Paul says, their wives, referring to deacons. Doesn't that just settle the matter? Doesn't that imply that deacons were males who had wives? And further, in verse 12, they are called the husband of one wife. Doesn't that imply they were males? Well, it's not quite that simple. Let's take up the first issue with verse 11. Verse 11 reads, their wives likewise must be dignified. Does their wives imply deacons were males married to women? There's actually a twofold problem. All right, look at the text. First of all, the word there is not in the Greek text. The word there is not in the Greek There implies a relationship to the deacons, their wives. But the there is added by the ESV translators as well as the KJV translators. Friends, Paul did not write the word there. The Holy Spirit did not breathe out that term. Second, the word wives is more commonly translated women. In the Greek, the term is gynekos, from which we get our word gynecology. It can be translated wives, that's true. In some cases, it's translated wives. But more often, it's translated women. So let me give you a very literal reading of verse 11. Women likewise must be dignified. Not their wives, but women likewise must be dignified. When the ESV translates gunekos as their wives, it's not merely translating, it's interpreting. It's interpreting that word to say we think this means their wives. And you probably see a little footnote in your ESV in which the translators acknowledge it can be translated women likewise. And the footnote in this case is actually the most literal reading. Listen to the NIV translation of verse 11. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. 
In this case, the NIV is actually more literal than either the ESV or the KJV. When you drop the possessive pronoun there, which is not in the Greek text, and read the Greek, gunekos, as women, it does indeed sound like Paul is singling out women in his list of deacon qualifications. Moreover, the word translated likewise in the ESV offers a link to Paul's previous subject, but also a clarification. Think about the word likewise. What does that mean? In other words, Paul begins his discussion by addressing male deacons, and he's going to come back to them also. But he adds a statement in the middle of his discussion to make sure all the women aren't excluded. Likewise, you women also. I'm talking to the males. But likewise, you women also. It makes more sense to read that as women with the likewise. Likewise, you women also. He's saying you women also need to be dignified. You deaconesses also. I'm not leaving you out of this. You need to be dignified. Now, there's one more major factor to consider. Also this. Earlier in the chapter, in verses 1 through 7, Paul addresses elders and their qualifications. But curiously, there is no corresponding statement about women. Well, if we read Gunekos in verse 11 as deacons' wives, doesn't it seem strange that Paul would omit a corresponding reference to elders' wives? Isn't that a little strange? I'm not, of course, suggesting that elders' wives shouldn't be spiritual women. It does, however, seem strange to me and to many others that Paul would single out deacons' wives and not at the same time single out elders' wives. So again, the more natural reading of verse 11 is that Paul isn't actually talking about the deacons' wives. He's talking about the female servants in the church. Thomas Schreiner writes, focusing on the wives of deacons, but not on the wives of elders, is strange. Yet if the reference is to female deacons, we have an elegant explanation for why the wives of elders aren't mentioned, for wives of deacons aren't included either. In other words, Paul isn't referring to wives at all, but to female deacons. Well, what about verse 12? Paul says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. And the Greek here refers to a man who is faithfully devoted to one woman. And doesn't that imply that these men were male? Well, of course, in this context, these deacons are in fact male. If you're married to a woman, you're male. But does that imply that the people in verse 11 were also male. Not necessarily. Remember the likewise. Paul is singling out the women in verse 11, and then in verse 12, he's simply going back to the men. You women in verse 11, you have to be dignified. Also, now let's go back to the men. Men, you have to be faithfully devoted to one wife. Verse 11, again, you deaconesses be dignified Verse 12, you deacons now, the men again, you be faithful to your wife. And again, the likewise, the likewise is really important there. It sets up a contrast to the more general rule that Paul is addressing male deacons in verses 8 through 10 and again in verse 12. 
Paul is addressing primarily male deacons, but verse 11 seems to add in there the women likewise. All right? Now, I'll just, I'll just add this also in as a caveat. We've got to be very, very careful about arguing a position from the implication of a statement. Yes, a male deacon should be faithful to his wife. Absolutely. But does this imply that all male deacons must be married, for instance? Well, can you never have an unmarried deacon? Or how about verse 12, where the deacon is to manage his own children well? He needs to be a good father, but does that imply that every deacon must have kids? I was a deacon at our church, my previous church, before we ever had kids. Elders are required to manage our children well also. Does that mean the Apostle Paul himself was disqualified because he had no kids? In other words, the point is this, be careful about putting too much weight on the implications of a statement. Yes, a deacon must be faithful to his wife, absolutely, but does that imply that he must be married or even that he must be male? Not necessarily, all right? So, all that to say, verse 11, it would seem, is identifying certain women servants in the church. That is the most natural reading of the text. And now you're probably wondering, okay, what does this all mean for us here at UBC? Does it mean that I need to find a new job next week? I was expecting more laughter. This is not good. (laughs) There we go. All right. Well, friends, I, I really, I really just need to be faithful to the text to the best of my ability. And in the end, that's my only consideration. And that needs to be your only consideration. Look at the text. Have I taught it clearly? And if not, just call me out on it. No problem. This is why I said everything I said to the elders. I want you to think. I said it to them like three weeks ago. We had a meeting. I said, this is what I'm talking about. You know, if I don't have your approval going forward, I'm not going to do this. All right? They didn't say anything. There have been three times since coming here to UBC that I've actually changed my mind about the interpretation of a passage, and three times that I've changed my view. One of them concerns whether a divorced man can serve as a deacon. I had to change my view on that. And I just got up in the pulpit, and I just preached what I thought the text was saying. All right? But you're still wondering, what does this mean here for us? All right? Well, let me just add a couple clarifications, and I think I'm going to put everybody at ease. All right. First of all, this issue is a whole lot easier to deal with now that we have recovered a biblical model of elder leadership. It's a whole lot easier to deal with. If you turn back one chapter, Paul is quite emphatic in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Paul reserves two domains, teaching and exercising authority for males in the church. And in particular, for elders in the church. Those two domains are, in fact, entrusted to the elders. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, the elder must be able to teach. 
And in 1 Timothy 5.17, he says the elders should rule well, that they should lead well, they'd be good overseers. So friends, we are not embracing female elders. But here's what very often happens in Baptist churches which no longer affirm the historic Baptist model of elder leadership. That is the historic model. I've showed that to you previously. Baptists originally had elders. They dropped them in the 20th century and now we're bringing them back, thankfully. All right, but here's what happened. The deacons often assumed elder responsibilities for teaching and exercising authority. So naturally, when you ask, can a woman serve as a deaconess, the immediate answer is no. And I actually agree. Not if she is going to violate Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. The answer is just got to be no. If you define your deacon as an elder, well then no. You should not put a woman in that situation. You wouldn't want to violate her conscience and have her disobey Paul's teaching here, all right? So if, in fact, deacons are engaged in the work of 1 Timothy 2.12, teaching and exercising authority, then it would be best for women not to engage in those activities. Verse 11 prohibits it. But what if you define your deacon roles using the literal meaning of the term deacon? A servant of the church. A servant of the church. Can a woman be a servant of the church? And this leads me to a second observation, and I think this is just going to put everybody at ease. I hope. We already have deaconesses at University Baptist Church. Although we have not used that term And I'm not talking merely about women who serve, but women who in fact serve in official capacity. In Acts 6, what was the first issue that provoked the church to go looking for deacons? What was the issue? The apostles said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Well, would you name for me the one person in our church who has done more of that kind of service in the kitchen, around the table, and ministering through meals than anyone else? I mean, what's her name? Karen. We're all thinking the same way. Aunt Karen. She's female. Karen has been a deaconess around this church for more than 40 years, and we don't let her rotate off. We have the privilege of having a Mary West in our church. We've had that privilege for a very, very long time. Now, of course, deacon responsibilities have grown significantly in modern churches. They include buildings and properties and vehicles and HVAC systems, all of which require the care of many of our male deacons. And they do a wonderful job of caring for these things. But it's very curious to me that Karen's role actually looks more like the original deacon role than our male deacons. Karen doesn't fix the AC units as far as I know. She might, but I'm not around. But, you know, and Karen actually has a role that resembles more of Act 6 than probably anybody here. Deacons are also involved in monetary matters. And who handles our finances? Well, there's two primary people. Barry Millsap is our treasurer. He is our current deacon chair, but Barry would be the first to tell you that Rebecca Bate, our assistant treasurer and financial secretary, handles most of the bookkeeping. And Barry would tell us that we would be in a bad place without her, wouldn't we, Barry? We would just, we'd be lost without Rebecca. Now, when I came to our church, Dave Rollins was the treasurer, and he was also doing the bookkeeping. He was kind of doing all those things together. 
And he spent just hours and hours and hours in that role, very faithfully serving as a deacon. We called him a deacon over finance, and we nearly killed him. We'll try again soon, all right? And what we did is we just took, we took a significant part of Dave's role, and we went to Rebecca, and we said, can you do this? And she agreed to serve our church in that way, to deacon us, our church, in that way, to serve us faithfully. If I said to you, Rebecca serves our church, that sounds completely normal, if I said to you, Rebecca, deacons our church, you'd say, what? Well, I'm actually just saying it in Greek. One of the major deacon roles in, our, in the early church was to oversee care for the members. In Acts 6, the deacon's job was to care for certain people, widows in, in particular, make sure they're not neglected. Well, did you know that we have a care calendar and we have somebody that oversees that and she is in charge of making sure that people don't get neglected? And guess what her name is? Mary Margaret, all right? And of course, Mary Margaret's on staff and so is Rebecca. But both of them do all kinds of things around here that we don't actually pay them for. I don't know if you know this, but Mary Margaret's just all the time. If we paid her for every last hour, we'd be broke, all right? She's served our church very, very well. Now, we have other roles around here for women that aren't paid. Uh, think of Ivy Kaufman. Ivy Kaufman has very faithfully served our church as the clerk for many, many years. She takes care of all kinds of details from baptisms to memberships to membership reports and minutes for the members' meetings. She serves or deacons our church very well. And in fact, she is elected every year to her position. A couple years ago, we recognized the need for someone to oversee our ushers and our greeters and to give some leadership in this area. So we approached Brother Jim Garris and we asked him, would you be willing to serve as a deacon in this role? And he agreed. And we also saw that we had a need in our nurseries for someone to take this on. So we did not approach a male. We went to Sarah Johannes. And we said, would you be willing to serve? If I were to say that in Greek, I would say, are you willing to deacon in this role? And she agreed. So friends, if you're thinking biblically about the term, we've been doing this already for a very, very long time. So friends, do we need to make any changes based on our understanding of the text? Should we start using the term deaconess? Should we start voting on women deaconesses at our annual meeting? I mean, should we vote on Sarah Johannes the same way we voted on, the way we voted on Jim Garris? You know, maybe, maybe not. I don't know at this point. Would it facilitate communication for Karen to attend a deacon's meeting so that, you know, you don't have to go from person to person and communicate, you know? Uh, some of the answers are not entirely clear to me at this point. And I'm just preaching this sermon out of fidelity to the text. I'm not restructuring anything at this point. I'm just putting it out there. And Brother Ted, who's involved with our deacons, and Barry said, look, I've got some good ideas. Great. Friends, if the term deaconess proves divisive, then I would say just avoid it. Just use the English equivalent. Just say servant. If members are uneasy about voting on a woman to serve as a deaconess over a nursery the same way we voted on Jim Garrison, let's not divide the church over it. Um, if you want the elders just to appoint somebody, we can do that too. I mean, we're going to have somebody's going to do it. All right. If Karen does not want to be called a deaconess, she's embarrassed by that term, don't call her that. Just thank her for her service, right? Thank her for her deaconing. 
All right. But again, I, I think possibly because for so many years our church functioned with deacons that look like elders, maybe not the, now is not the time to make big adjustments. I don't even know. I, I'm really just solely trying to come at the text and to be honest with the text. And maybe we just need to take some time and let the elder model settle in and see where this ends up going. The fact is, friends... We would, not, we would not serve the Lord by dividing the church over this issue. We really would not serve the Lord in doing that. But we can serve the Lord in just letting His Word speak clearly. And that's what I've tried to do. And let's just all agree on this. The Bible does highly value the role of women in the local church. Even if we're not quite settled on what to call them, I know this may be new to many of you. I've thought about it for probably two years. All right, But the fact is, all of us, both men and women, are called to serve the Lord by serving the church. Every last one of us. Paul, Jesus, Timothy, Phoebe, we are all called to serve the church. And let me just conclude here. Jesus in Isaiah, friends, is called the suffering servant. Jesus went to a cruel and bloody cross to serve his church, which he redeemed with his own blood. And the night before he was crucified, Jesus the deacon, Jesus the servant, stooped to wash the disciples' feet. And if our passion at UBC is to bring people to Christ and Christ-likeness, then our passion really has to be to serve for all of us to deacon one another. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that you would give us a great compassion to serve each other. We thank you, Lord, for the extraordinary women that you have placed in our church who have served so well in so many wonderful ways. We thank you for Sister Karen this morning, Lord, and how she has just so faithfully served this body for years and years and years, long before some of us were even here. We thank you for Mary Margaret, who serves so faithfully in her office, day in and day out, for Rebecca and the work that she does and uh, on our finances. And we, we thank you for Sarah in the nurseries and uh, for uh, Sister Ivy, who faithfully keeps up all of our records. And so many, Lord, I could just go through the church and just start naming all the women who serve here in so many extraordinary ways and so many that serve so quietly uh, so many that are, are making meals, so many that are caring. We thank you for the Malines and the wonderful work they do in taking care of the properties here. And uh, Lord, we're just so, so grateful. And we're so grateful that Christ is an example of service for all of us, each and every one of us. And I pray that in the end, we would not be divided over this issue, but that we would be united in our love for Christ. That we would be united and the joy that we find in serving Christ. And our passion indeed would be to bring people to Christ and Christ's likeness. We pray for His sake. Amen.